Freedom of Species brings animal advocacy to the airwaves. It's a radio program dedicated to raising awareness of issues concerning animals. This includes advocacy, activism, protection, conservation, and importantly, appreciation. This show broadcasts from the 3CR studios in Melbourne on 855am and we're streamed live via the 3CR website. Recent podcasts are also available on the 3CR website, which is www.3cr.org.au and all previous podcasts are available on the Freedom of Species podcast website, freedomofspecies.org, as well as on iTunes. Thanks to Sally for that edition of Out of the Pan. And I'm Nick Pendergrass hosting Freedom of Species, and my co-host today is Adam Cardellini. Thanks for coming in, Adam. No worries. And our guest today is Jess Ison. Thanks for coming in, Jess. Thanks for having me. And I guess to give a bit of a background of uh, Jess, and Jess can correct me or, or fill me in, but uh, <laughs> Jess is an animal activist and has been active on the campaign against duck shooting, for example, and is also an academic who researches issues around animals and other social uh, justice issues and movements, particularly the queer movement. And today, Jess is going to be talking about animals and prisons. And I guess to give a bit of a background on the idea of animals and prisons, uh, I guess as animal advocates, we all want to, you know, stop animals being harmed. But we've got lots of sort of tools in our kit to do that. That can be like consumer awareness. It could be going after corporations. It could be direct action. Another way is giving people higher fines, putting more people in prisons and those kind of things. And Jess is going to caution against that as a tactic today, basically. And I thought maybe a good way to start um, that discussion is to give an example, which you gave a talk on this topic a while ago about a jockey on a fishing trip. So I thought that might be a really good way to start uh, challenging this idea of prisons and punitive measures as a way to combat animal cruelty. Yeah, so um, I came across that article when I was kind of thinking about this topic, about this jockey on a fishing trip who who stabbed a stingray and then threw the stingray back in the water. And he filmed it and he put it up uh, on Facebook and he got this huge amount of um, slack for it. And I thought, isn't this absolutely fascinating what's happening here where someone who's a jockey, right, so anybody who knows anything about the racing industry knows how terribly uh, the horses are treated and those are the ones who make it to the track, let alone the um, hundreds if not thousands that are killed who don't even make it there, let alone all the other horses that are killed in knackeries and so on. Um, So he's a jockey um, on a fishing trip whose um, actual purpose is then to be, mm, I'm guessing, catching fish. Um, and, of course, fishing is uh, killing of fish. Um, and yet he's he's doing some type of animal cruelty when it comes to him stabbing this stingray. And so there's something going on here around which animals we think are worthy of being seen as uh, as being able to be even have cruelty enacted upon them. And also from that, people were saying he needs to be prosecuted. He needs to be uh, given a fine. This needs to be about animal cruelty charges. He needs to go to prison. Uh, these are the kind of calls you saw on the internet. Um, so the, the only time that they wanted to do that was about um, when he's stabbing the stingray. But also I thought... Well, what what its precedent is this setting where we're calling for these types of people to be put in jail? What's this saying um, in relation to a society that's killing billions of animals, if not uh, more, uh, up to a trillion, right, every year? Mm-hmm. Um, and yet the one person who stabs a stingray is being told that they should be put in jail. So there's something going on here um, mm. that needs to be unpacked. 
Yeah, definitely. I, I think it's funny that in our society, there's um, a big, in, in Australia, not so much in America or rural America, but in Australia, there's quite a backlash against hunting. Mm-hmm. Um, but fishing is like a fun, leisurely family activity, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. it's basically just hunting in the water, really, isn't it? Yes, so exactly. it's weird that people have that kind of disconnect. And I, I guess just speaking more broadly, I guess that, you know, these kind of measures often um, sort of create that hierarchy of like accepted animal abuse mm-hmm. versus mm-hmm. unaccepted animal abuse. Mm-hmm. So do you want to talk a bit about this, this sort of focus on the social? called bad apples while ignoring the much larger animals killed in more accepted industries and practices? Yeah, I mean, a perfect example is I saw yesterday in the Port Macquarie News a title, Man Charged with Animal Cruelty After Cow Transported in Trailer Along Pacific Highway. And so here we have, I mean, given what we've found out about, um, I mean, how many animals do we see transported along the highway every day in trucks? What did we just see happen with Ban Live Export, um, with the export campaign um, around all those animals who died in the ships? And yet this man is is treated as this one bad apple. And I think this is a deliberate tactic from from their animal industries because what they want us to see is that in Australia we love our animals, right? How much do we hear that? We love our animals. We love our animals. We treat them so well. Um, Which is also what we saw in the live export campaign that was like, we should kill them here, which is, of course, um, also not so thinly veiled racism. Um, but the idea in Australia we have often is I love animals or people say I'm an animal lover as they eat an animal. And so in this example, you have this cow. And, and again, this is a terrible thing to have done to this one cow. Um, however, there's hundreds of cows being transported, thousands of cows probably transported along that highway that day. Um, but when it's a single instance, as you said, it's created as this one bad apple um, rather than a structural issue against uh, around the way that we treat animals. And so by creating one person as a bad person, we can then wash over the amount of animal cruelty that happens on a daily basis, what would be seen as the more mundane cruelty. Um, we can forget the slaughterhouse we can because that's behind closed doors um, and we can focus on this one example. And that's continually what I'm seeing with these many, many examples that I'm finding where people are, are wanting to prosecute and, and increasingly um, prosecute um, through uh, prison sentences. And this call is, is coming from animal activists. But I argue that actually what this does is reinforce the slaughterhouse as a place where cruelty isn't occurring rather than actually doing um, the long-term work of making animals actually being, um, be seen as um, subjects of a life um, and that any animal doesn't deserve cruelty against them. That, that's a really interesting position that you're, you're saying that it might be a deliberate deliberate um, move by the industry. It's sort of legitimising standard operating procedures. Mm-hmm, exactly. It's like we've got these standard ways that we can abuse, torture and kill animals. Mm-hmm. And if you do it outside of those, then you're a bad person yeah. and we're going to prosecute you. We're going to, but that, So it reinforces that our standard operating procedures are the correct ones. Yes, That's exactly. how we should be killing animals. That's how we should be abusing animals. Exactly. Because, yeah. And you look, and that's already written into the law, right? The laws in every state in um, Australia around animal cruelty have all these things that you can and can't do to an animal. Uh, and then they all have um, caveats or they all have exemptions around farming, farm practices, mm. um, around veterinary practices, etc., which are built into the law um, to allow you to be able to do that to farm animals. And then, of course, um, most of that is then the industry is self-regulating. Um, so it has to then, of course, have some these the bad people need to be the the single bad apple rather than actually the entire industry because if you're going to actually say that that man because really one man transporting a cow down a highway compared to everything else that's kind of that's not so bad if you want to if you want to look at it in terms of what's worse than what happens in a slaughterhouse right or what happens in a factory farm um so you need to really paint this bad apple to make what's happening in a slaughterhouse what's happening in a factory farm normalized 
Yep. Yeah. And and even like transport, they're often piled in together here. The cows got their own space, not not to justify it, but yeah. yeah, often we focus on the exceptions rather than the rules and mm-hmm. also paint these exceptions as different from the rule that's going on in an ongoing basis on such a large scale. Exactly. So mm-hmm. I guess that's one argument against it. We're going to go into a lot more, but we're going to take a track now. So this is quite relevant uh, looking to the idea of animals and prisons. We're going to play a song by the band Goldfinger called Iron Fist. And this was uh, the singer John Feldman, who's a vegan animal rights activist and Actually, his house was raided by the FBI um, just for going to an above-ground animal rights demonstration. And so I thought that was quite relevant in terms of looking critically into uh, the role of the state and animals. Fight for your mic. 3CR Radiothon 2018. Fight for your mic. The sound of the weapon called a microphone. Bring the revolution on. Broadcasting to the early morning. June 4th to the 17th. Fight for your mic. Rebel music on the dance floor. Tell me what you're fighting for because this day gonna keep you alive. Forget about your troubles and your nine to five with the rhythm of the pump. You are listening to Freedom of Species and we are joined by Jess Ison discussing prisons and animals. And yeah, continuing that discussion, looking critically at this idea of using prisons as a way to uh, take a stand against animal abuse. Um, yeah, there are definitely some intersectional connections between animals and prisons and the use of cages for both prisoners and animals. So do you want to talk a bit about some of those connections of why philosophically as animal advocates opposed to animals being caged, we might uh, be critical or object to prisons? Mm-hmm. Um, I guess the to, to even answer that, we have to think about the, um, the problem with an, a system that's built on um, incarceration, which is what our system is built on. Um, which goes, which has so many problems um, that, that would be a show in and of itself. Um, but in in terms of um, prisons, I mean, if we think about in the um, Australia, in Australia for so-called Australia, um, we have multiple ways that prisons um, are a foundation of this uh, so-called country, um, because of course, first, um, firstly, uh, a genocide that this country is built on, um, and then sending people here for um, using this country as a prison, right? And so the very foundations of this country are are a prison. Um, and we need to be critical of prisons at all times, regardless um, of what activism we're doing, because reinforcing the, the caging of humans in and of itself is, is something that we should never be doing as activists um, across the different work that we're doing. Um, oh, I think you were asking me more, though, about the links between prisons and cages, right? But I, I kind yeah, of... Yeah, I mean, they're both related. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that it's important to understand, though, um, the problems with prisons in and of themselves, mm-hmm. um, which I think a lot of animal activists don't um, understand. Because, I mean, in Australia, for example, the highest um, prison population, um, we have the highest in- Indigenous incarceration rates in the world. Um, they make up almost um, th- um, 30% of our prison population um, and yet 2 to 3% of the overall population. Um, and one of the biggest growing groups of prisoners in Australia is women. Women traditionally haven't been incarcerated to the same um uh, degree as men, uh, but and of course, given those rates, um, the the people who are the women who are being incarcerated are Indigenous women, and so as um, as activists, we need to be thinking about decolonisation, and one of the uh, key aspects of that needs to be um, against the prison system. And so, any action actions that we do as activists that reinforce the prison system um, is, is in fact reinforcing colonisation um, and is reinforcing genocide and is reinforcing the capitalist state that is found on the prison. And so, from the outset, 
um, regardless of whether or not we're talking about animals, we need to be looking at um, activism that doesn't reinforce the prison as a structure, in fact, tears the prison down always. That needs to be foundational to our activism. Um, And if we also look at the ways in which animal activists um, ourselves have been um, strategically targeted by the state, um, and if we consider that in the US, and a lot of the animal activists listening will know this history, but animal activists have been targeted um, in the US and the UK in particular, uh, and and by the the state, by the prison system, by the police, um, and been called terrorists, right? Um, And so, you know, you can look into that in more detail, because we probably don't have time to go into detail on that today. But as animal activists, also for our own activism, reinforcing the, the prison is is, I guess, you know, shooting ourselves in the foot, if you will. <laughs> um, excuse that uh, gun metaphor. And so we, again, in another sense, also need to be not thinking about prisons as a solution because the people who are going to get targeted are going to be activists, are going to be people of colour, are going to be disenfranchised people. So any moves we make to reinforce the prison system um, only serve to then make it stronger. And making the prison system stronger is never something we should be doing. Um, so before we can even think about the different ways that there's similarities around caging and um, and things like that, we need to um, actually understand the issues with the prison itself uh, and think about the ways in which we can move towards decarceration. Um, and I really like a quote, and I can never know who I actually got it from, and I can never find it again, but I heard someone say once, um, prison abolition isn't about... Um, abolishing prisons, it's about abolishing a society that could have prisons. And so that needs to be the move that we go through in whatever our activism is. Prisons need to be something that we think about always and never reinforce. And I think there's a lot of people who maybe just animal advocates and hadn't thought, hadn't thought too much about the issue of prisons, et cetera, role of the state and these kind of broader issues. Um, there's a lot of myths or sort of sound bites around about prisons, that we need prisons for our protection and mm-hmm. who, who's us and these kind of things. Mm-hmm. There's a lot to break down within that, but also um, prisons are about rehabilitating people. There's these kind of myths out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so do you want to touch on, yeah, some of these myths, these sort of widely held beliefs that mm-hmm. maybe if you look into can be fairly easily challenged? Yeah, I mean, prisons, Prisons, what they do, they serve to um, reinforce the marginalisation of the oppressed and they also serve to keep the rest of us in line. That's the function of the prison. The prison isn't there for our protection at all. Um, and if you think about it, the people who are um, prisoned are those who already come often from a marginalised position. So rather than actually looking at changing society, we just cage people who we don't want. They, they do not protect us. Um, and that's this myth that's really hard for people to come to terms with because when you start thinking about the myth of the prison, you have to actually start thinking about the many myths that our society is founded on and it really shakes up everything. Um, and so prisons also do not exist for rehabilitation at all because the um, what happens in a prison is usually people are re-traumatised and we see huge rates of um, people in prison who are, for example, um, strip searched uh, and that's a particular um, issue that's being raised at the moment in the Australian context um, about the issues with that, particularly in relation to women, because many women have already been um, faced sexual assault um, who are incarcerated and then they're being fo- further re-traumatised. And so when you're re-traumatising people uh, and then you're caging them um, in, in, in a prison with other traumatised people, um, you're continuing a cycle. You're not breaking a cycle. There is Prison isn't about rehabilitation. No matter how much they want to sell nice stories to us about what they're doing in prisons, that's not the purpose of prisons. The purpose of prisons is to um, keep people in line and to, um, put a, to put away people whose society's decided we don't want. Um, and so it's all part of this, the incarceration structure. And, and so, hang on, what was your original question? 
uh, about the myths of prison, rehabilitation and protection, these mm-hmm. kind of things, yeah. Yeah, I think protection's the other one, right? And part of that is also the idea that the police protect us. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, I guess they do if you're a certain person. If you are um, certain people in our society, I guess they do protect you in a sense. If you're one of the privileged people, then yeah, I guess it's true. Prisons probably do and police do protect you. Um, at what expense, though? Who isn't being protected and who's being targeted, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's that, that lie of the prison actually serves to reinforce certain groups as privileged um, and to protect those people's property, uh, which is the original function of the police um, under capitalism. So um, undoing that is a huge process, undoing, um, and we have this our whole lives. Our whole lives where, you know, when you're at school, what do you do? You get sent to the corner, right? Our whole, um, our punishment system is built on um, excluding people for doing what we think is wrong. But often, actually, a lot of what people are incarcerated for will often be property offences, um, and they'll often be related to poverty. Um, it's not actually the Otherwise, if people who the real people who we might want to call criminals were in jail, um, they'd be like the people running our country. Um, <laughs> it wouldn't be people who stole a television or, um, or you know, for whatever other reason. Um, so, yeah, but I mean, prison abolition is not the only answer. Um, there's, it's got some inherent issues in it, but um, it's, it's, a, it's more of a provocation um, for thinking about what a society could look like without prisons and one that was actually about transformative justice. Um, and so if we bring this back to um, the animals, um, if you have somebody in prison for animal abuse um, and, and you're apparently rehabilitating them, what, what does that actually look like? How do you abuse? How do you rehabilitate an animal abuser in a society that has factory farms? <laughs> I'm not really sure <laughs> yeah. what what that even is going to be. Um, do you tell them that beating up their dog was wrong um, when you can just drop your dog at the pound and have your dog killed um, when you don't want them anymore? I'm not really sure, even in this sense, that that makes any any sense at all because I, I cannot fathom what um, rehabilitating animal abuse looks like. But actually in a lot of the literature I've read, what it's actually arguing is that somebody who's an animal abuser is then going to go and harm a human yeah. or that what they're doing is, um, you know, I've got all these articles written about it where people say things like um, that those animals have value to humans and so we need to stop mm. people abusing them. That's the direct quotes that say that. Yeah, and I, I've read a, a fair bit into that literature as well. It's the link, you know, in, yeah. in um, criminology literature. It's the link between animal abuse leading on to then predicting um, human abuse. Yes. And we need to monitor animal abuse so that we can identify early on mm. whether someone's going to go on to abuse yes. people rather than monitoring animal abuse so that people don't abuse animals. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. it's it's very anthropocentric way mm-hmm. of of looking at the issue. Mm. And and look, some of these cases are people doing heinous things to animals. I mean, that I don't that just goes without saying, right? That it's I don't want people doing this. Um, but if we're looking at the larger structures around it, we can see that this is serving a different purpose than actually about caring for those animals. I mean, one place that there has been some moves has been around um, intimate partner violence, um, and often a, um, a companion animals might be targeted in that. Mm. Um, and so there has been um, some places like shelters who do take um, animals so that um, uh, particularly women can um, escape and because often refuges might not take them. Yeah. Um, so there is, it's not saying that there can't be some links there around um, cruelty, a certain type of cruelty towards animals. Mm. But on a larger level, by focusing on these as the moments of cruelty, we're obscuring 
the factory farm and the slaughterhouse. Mm-hmm. And I know this is, this is a huge one, but I thought you might want to touch on it because I know this is a key research area for you and a topic of interest. But yeah, you mentioned like queer people in the state and those mm-hmm. kind of things. And there has been this move in recent years of like police marching in the Mardi Gras mm-hmm. with like queer pins on and these kind of mm-hmm. things. So yeah, I guess there's maybe a perception that the state has maybe shifted its role uh, mm-hmm. to queer people, but mm-hmm. not all queer people, et cetera, et cetera. So yes. do you want to touch, I know it's a huge one, we could do a whole show on this, but mm-hmm. would you like to touch on that? relationship and mm. uh, treatment of queer people by police, prisons, etc. Yeah, I think, and that's an important topic because we are coming in a bit, you know, this in the US, it is come, it's coming to Pride Month and so people are saying, um, they're seeing this conversation come up again um, because the police do march in Pride parades all around the world. And of course, most um, most Pride movements and, and those still continuing um, in, in countries that are, um, do not have you know, so-called accepted queer people um, are seeing, are still seeing police repression. Um, but in for in Australia, um, the police have been marching in the Mardi Gras for a while now. And um, one of the things is as well that they say the reasons why the police are for us now is because we have the gay and lesbian liaison officers. I mean, most of that's a kind of exaggeration anyway. There's usually maybe one um, and that's part, part of their job or it's a volunteer extra to their job anyway. Um, but the idea that now, because um, we've had this, the kind of, narrative for gay liberation is that, you know, we were oppressed by the state um, and then we went through um, the AIDS crisis uh, and now we've come out the other side and we have gay marriage and the police are marching in the parade and um, we're all having this really great time. Um, of course, we are. We do get sporadic examples of the police um, even on the night of Mardi Gras um, have harming queer people um but also of course throughout the year um and i mean think in the u.s um i just heard we heard a couple of days ago about um the border uh the border there uh uh for i don't want to yeah i'm worried i haven't given a trigger warning on this but um there was a a trans woman who was killed by the um, border force what are they called in the u.s um border patrol border patrol yeah um and, and so if you're not an acceptable queer person, um, if you're not the type of queer person who lives in, in a nice apartment on the south side of Melbourne, um, uh, the police probably are not the ones who are protecting, they're not there to protect you, right? They're actually, in fact, protecting those people. And this is something that queer people have been fighting back against constantly. Um, and also this year, though, in good news, uh, in the Mardi Gras, there was some amazing activists who dressed up as um, as Border Force agents um, and blocked the uh, Liberal Party float, um, which was in itself ter- terrible that the Liberal Party were marching in the parade after putting us through the marriage vote. Yeah. Um, and then... Um, But I would just like to make a note, actually, that I wrote an article about this and somebody directly responded to me um, about it and and likened me to McCarthy, uh, somebody from the right, which I thought was a real high point in my career that I was likened to McCarthy, (laughs) saying that I was going to go on a witch trial of the Liberals. Um, Mm. Anyway, (laughs) so there there is also a huge amount of activism uh, fighting back against what we call the homonormativity, um, the way of trying to normalise um, queer people to be just like straight people. We are constantly fighting back against that. Um, so it's not just something that's being pushed onto us. We do fight back, um, which I think is also really important to always point out. Mm. And uh, yeah, definitely check out. Or oh, did you have something, Adam? I was, I was just going to say, um, and, and it's interesting. So as you were saying earlier, um, by reinforcing police and those sort of structures, security structures are there to reinforce the state mm-hmm. and the position of the state, the ideology of the state. And when you when you oppose that or outside of those ideologies, then they come down on you, mm-hmm. and you have um, people going to prison, say, animal terrorists. Mm-hmm. Um, 
so if we are reinforcing the idea that a police the police are a legitimate system or mm-hmm. legitimate structure, we are making it harder for ourselves to step outside of the ideology of the state, mm-hmm. which are that we need to use animals and mm-hmm. fight against that. Mm. And I suppose, um, is, how how is like for for animals? There's no way that they can have police marching on their side. They're always going to be oppressed. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no way that as animal. Um, liberationists, we can have that same relationship with police because mm. animals are property in mm. our in our society or yes. address like that. And yeah. if we and and the fact is that what we are fighting against as animal um, activists, animal liberationists, um, is against capitalism. Mm. And the police exist to support capitalism. Yeah. And so if we're reinforcing them, we're reinforcing capitalism, which is one of not saying that other under other under other systems that animals wouldn't be oppressed. But under this system, under capitalism, animals are terribly oppressed. And so if we're reinforcing capitalism as um, as something that needs to be saved, we're reinforcing, again, it's the shooting the self in the foot. Mm. Um, but also I think one of the other things that we haven't talked about a lot as animal activists is particularly when we look at the ag-gag laws in the U.S., the people who've been targeted by that so far, um, a lot of the people, not all of them, have been white. Um, have been cisgendered that I know of, um, and predominant, and a lot of them have been heterosexual, right? The, so, also, what I is we need to be thinking about is how how else are these laws going to be used, right? Where's, this mm. is a precedent that's used against those who the state often doesn't incarcerate, mm-hmm. um, and so this then is setting a really dangerous precedent for those um, the state does incarcerate, and that's something we need to be constantly pushing back against um, and, and not reinforcing because I th- I'm, I'm worried about how these laws are going to be used next and who they're going to target now that they're set in place um, and have been used against, um, yeah, against the people who the state... The most um, privileged. The yeah. most privileged, mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that they, these sort of ad laws are quite a interesting thing and maybe a radicalising kind of experience as we played the Goldfinger song before, like someone like uh, John Felburn or myself, for example, if we weren't activists, we probably would have quite a different view and experience mm-hmm. of the police. Mm-hmm. It's only being an activist that kind of puts you in there. And I also wanted to uh, touch on the idea of, yeah, going back to the idea of protection, I have heard a lot of animal activists who have been in prison for more property-related defences, such as rescuing animals who are considered property. And uh, there's the idea of prisoners like a crime workshop so they knew nothing about crime beyond maybe like saving animals but you know more sort of heavier crimes they didn't know but you learn you're in there with people who've done these other crimes Mm -hmm. and so it actually sort of leads to more crime in a lot of ways rather than protecting us but you touched on the idea of transformative justice as sort of an alternative or something we could um, aim towards maybe you could sort of elaborate on that um, that idea for those who are unfamiliar with that concept. Yeah I guess transformative justice um, is usually led by um, a survivor um, of of a situation, um, so um, yeah, I just crossed my mind wondering how that would look like for animals. Um, I think we're, I can't mm. even imagine that because our society is so deeply embedded with um, animal abuse that it's not even something I can really even fathom. Um, but in in terms of um, for humans, um, transformative justice is about yeah a survival led process um, that they will kind of say what they need from the process. Mm. Um, and work with, uh, and then a group of people often will work with um, so the person who's perpetuated the offence, um, and and work towards not just um, giving some giving the their overall outcome. Of course, is for that person to change, and the hope that 
um, that people aren't inherently bad people and that, in fact, we can work towards um, changing. And and that's a flawed process when we're looking at this. We are, we, we're living under um, capitalism. We're living under patriarchy. So we're living under, etc. all these really um, terrible processes. So we're still figuring out what that even looks like and how we can even do that in our current time, let alone for this society that we might envision that we have. But when we are envisioning a society, when we are thinking whatever that looks like, whether that be an anarchist society, in, in my opinion, um, one of the things that needs to be embedded in that is um, transformative justice processes, mm. not punitive measures. Mm. Yeah, definitely. And I also think that, yeah, in terms of animal abuse, maybe it would be something along the lines of like, um, you know, trying to challenge speciesism. But mm. again, in this current system where animal exploitation is supported by the police, by the state, by every, everyone in our society or most people in our society, it's like it would be a very specific uh, understanding of animal abuse of maybe not harming dogs and cats, but mm. not looking at these broader issues. So, yeah, mm. that's another thing we have to challenge. But I think we might go to a, a track at this point. So we're going to play another one by Goldfinger, again, looking at this relationship between um, yeah the state and animals and, and these kind of issues. And this specifically looks at um, the Animal Liberation Front uh, with the reference behind the mask, which is what the song is called by Goldfinger. And yeah, the relationship between these activists and the state. I've stood on the kill floors in many slaughterhouses and not ours for entertainment or any other exploitive power. 3CR Radiothon 2018, Fight for Your Mic. The 3CR annual Radiothon fundraiser is almost here. From June the 4th to the 17th, we're asking you to help us stay on air by making a generous donation. Any amount you can afford makes a big difference, and all donations over $2 are tax deductible. To donate, call 039419 or donate online at 3cr.org.au. 3CR Radiothon 2018. Fight for your mic. This is David Rovix and you are tuned to 3CR 8.55am Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do and everything can change. You're listening to Freedom of Species on 3CR 855 AM and we are joined by Jess Ison discussing animals and prisons and, and more generally about using punitive measures to combat animal abuse. And in this final section, we're going to talk a little bit about animal abuse registries. And Jess is going to make some links between animal abuse registries and sex offender registries. So I just want to add a content warning. We'll be discussing the topic of uh, sexual assault, not so much in detail about specific cases, but more methods to address it. But I thought I'd just give a a heads up about that to listeners. But maybe we could start off with uh, what animal abuse registries actually are. Yeah, so they're something that I'm seeing an increasing call for. Um, from animal activism. There's there's one online um, already that exists and basically they're modelled on the sex offender registry um, and they're people saying that once somebody's been um, accused of animal cruelty or prosecuted, um, that they should go on this registry. Um, and then really all they're saying is that they shouldn't then be allowed to uh, adopt dogs and cats or other pets um, is kind of the extent of it or I guess maybe work in an animal industry. Uh, and so animal... I guess, activists, you could say, are calling for these um, to exist, um, to catch these so-called 
you know, animal abusers. Um, and, and it's something that there's um, the one that you can look up uh, online and, and type people's names in as well um, to find out if they're an animal abuser, um, which we can go into, we'll go into why that's um, a problem. Um, and so it's not something that that one is being regulated that I'm not necessarily saying it'd be better if it was regulated by the state, um, but other people are arguing that it should be something regulated by the state. So once you are um, through the court system, one thing that will happen is um, you'll go on this registry. And then I guess vets or um, animal, you know, the kind of bigger Mm. idea would then be that um, places that adopt out animals would have access to that and they could look your name up to check that you weren't on the registry Mm -hmm. is the kind of basics of what people are arguing for. Mm -hmm. And I know you've done research into sex offender registries, which maybe point to that this may not be the most uh, effective or, or best option to mm-hmm. tackle animal abuse. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, obviously we can't make that link directly, but yeah, some cautions from looking into the sex offender registry. Yeah, I mean, sex offender registries, um, I read a report from um, the the State Department in the US. So that's where we see um, the main kind of sex offender registries that we think of when, when I say sex offender registries. Um, and it kind of says at best they do nothing. Um, that's a report that they put out. So, I mean, I guess it's really important to kind of understand the problems with the sex offender registry. Um, and, and, and you know, my opinion of them comes from someone who is a prison abolitionist. Um, so I'll just put my bias out there to begin with. Um, so I'm incredibly opposed to these sex offender registries. So just to give a little bit of history of what, what they look like in the US, and again, apologies for being US-centric, but um, the ones in Australia are a little different, um, but people are increasingly calling for them to look like the US. Um, in particular, um, Darren Hinch, um, who I actually think is one of the most interesting and yet terrifying politicians because his platform forms are so um, that you, you kind of can't pin him down in one way. Um, <laughs> and so one of his big platforms he runs on is the sex offender registry. And then he, and he has that um, as well as um, animal cruelty. Um, mm. uh, on, is he a vegetarian or something? I saw something recently. I don't recently even think he that, is vegetarian, yeah, but he does yeah. stand up. He's like, I'm against, he wants um, animal cruelty, um, stronger animal cruelty um, to, to be imposed, um, uh, penalties. Mm-hmm. And he also um, yeah, is advocating for the sex offender registry to be more like the US one. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, you can look on uh, – yeah, you know when you end up on those weird um, spirals on the internet and you're all of a sudden all over Darren Hinch's page and trying to understand <laughs> what his politics are. I, I did that when we, we were doing an episode a while ago uh, with uh, Gonzalo Villanueva and, yeah, it was it was about live export and he had, had an interesting tweet about live export which actually kind of similar to some of the more radical aspects of the animal rights movement saying we've been doing these positions 30 years, like what's changed? Mm-hmm. And that was kind of interesting but then I kind of, yeah, went into a spiral and saw he was tweeting not necessarily that he was vegan but, like, vegans were great basically. He really? was tweeting yeah all supporting so that was good i guess yeah <laughs> but, but that i i just i'm so skeptical of him because i'm like yeah. is he just doing that because he's going for a certain anyway yeah. we don't have to talk about the, the minutiae of ne- darren hinch's ne- platform ne- next show actually is going to be all about darren hinch so look forward to that tune yeah. um so the the kind of history in the u.s um it, it's really quite interesting history um yeah so just again uh, that content warning because i am going to talk about some specific cases where the laws came from um so in the in the US you had a kind of sex offender registry that was state based um and didn't speak to other states right it was just something that um the police had access to um and kind of i guess kind of similar to what we have here and then in 1993 
because <clears throat> um, there'd been this uh, terrible case, um, a young boy went missing whose name was Jacob Wedling. Um, and that case has actually only recently been um, solved. Um, actually, you can listen to a really interesting podcast on this um, that's, that looks at the history of, of that case, but also at the sex offender registries. Um, it's called In the Dark. It's really great. I can recommend it to give you a good background of, of um, where these laws came from. So Jacob Wedling um, was abducted. And his family, um, his mother in particular, became an advocate um, for um, these sex offender registries. But originally what she wanted um, was for these registries to be accessible across states, for the police to have access across states, Mm. so that if an offender was moving states, um, that offender would have to uh, register with the next state um, rather than just being able to move to get away from um, that conviction. So now... um, we have then in 1996 um, another horrific case and then that was brought in um, from Megan Kenker and that was called Megan's Law. Um, and then in 2006, the Adam Walsh Act, um, which added to it. So what happened was um, from that original case, um, the kind of more conservative uh, arm of the US got hold of these sex offender registries and ran with them. Um, and then they kind of use them to what we see now, which is um, where people are um, publicly on the registry and they're on the registry for life. Uh, and actually, Jacob Wedling's mother is now opposed to the registries and actively wow. so, um, and, actually, and actively visits um, people who are on the registry um, who are also incarcerated. Um, and so she's, yeah, and she's, her son's the reason why they were kind of started Um, but there was some kind of you can listen to it in more detail on that podcast but it was kind of these kind of loopholes in it that allowed for the current situation and so there's multiple issues that are with the sex offender registries but I'll just go into a few Um, the the kind of one of the key issues is that the sex offender registries make out like a sex offender is um, the the creepy person in the dark alleyway and that person does exist right Mm. definitely but actually it's more likely somebody you know And so one of the links I'm making to the problems with the animal abuse registry is that similar to the sex offender registry, it reinforces the bad apple. Mm. It reinforces that some people are bad and takes away from actually the structural issues that allow for um, sex abuse to be from someone that you know to be um, under these systems of power that we have, right? Um, And same with the animal abuse registry. So I'm not trying to make links between um, abuse against animals and uh, and abuse against um, children, rather just this this kind of structural things that I'm seeing that create some um, some Mm. similarities around um, the results. Um, And so... That's really one of the key problems with the sex offender registry. Um, and, it, and it takes away from lots of, particularly what feminists have been arguing around looking at um, structural reasons why um, sexual assault occurs. Um, there's uh, many other issues. Um, one of the other things that I look at is the way in which actually queer people are disproportionately affected by sex offender registries. When you look into them, actually, um, it's not only people who are pedophiles who are on a sex offender registry. In the US, people um, are on them for things like public urination. Um, People are on them because um, they were having consensual sex in public, um, which, of course, who does that target? Gay men in in a 
uh, a lot of the times because gay men are going to be the ones who the police will pick up at, at a sex beat rather than heterosexuals who will get a little wink, wink, nod, nod, nod. Mm. Um, and um, there's some really particularly bad examples of the ways that queers have been affected um, by these registries. For example, in some states in the US, the, um, the laws around consent under 18 years of age do not apply to queer people. So when somebody um, is in a consensual relationship with somebody of, of a two-year age range, which is acceptable for heterosexuals, um, if that's a queer couple and one person goes over the, um, the, the the age range of child, which is about usually 16, then that person um, will be seen as being a sex offender. So that is like a 19-year-old having, having sex with a 17-year-old, for example? Um, I think it would more that? maybe be between like 14 and 16, oh, right, I see. when yeah. the person hits 16. Okay, yeah. So what yeah. is a consensual relationship when they're under the age of 16? Mm-hmm. Um, because they're – and it might not even be an actual two-year range. It might be a year and a half, you know, they might be mm-hmm. 14 and 16, but, you know, or 15, you know. Yeah. Um, and but once one of them hits sixteen, um, and there's a particular case where that happened, um, and the outcomes are absolutely heinous of what happened to those young, two young um, people, uh, and the older one is now on the sex offender registry for life. You cannot wow. get off it. Mm. Um, and so th- I, you know, I have case after case where this is the example. But look, some of the people on there are the worst ideas of the most um, heinous acts. Um, but. What happens now with the sex offender registries is people can only live in certain areas um, and usually it might be one tiny area. Sometimes the only area where they can live because of different rules or zoning rules around schools and so on might be under a bridge. So even if everyone on that list is our worst idea of an offender, surely forcing them all to live together under a bridge isn't a good idea. Right, but this is what we have in a system that incarcerates people and thinks and tries to treat people like trash. That then we're going to leave um, these offenders living under a bridge altogether, right? Um, and actually, a lot of the research shows that an offender, um, the the longer they go without offending, the less the it, it decreases their chance of offending. So actually, what you need to do is really sub- community support somebody once they, if they're coming out of prison, which they will be now in this, in this system. And the longer you, the, the stronger the support is, the less chance of the reoffence. So now with the sex offender registries, they're saying, well, we're catching all these people, right? We're seeing an increase in the recidivism, being people being caught for recidivism. But some argue, well, perhaps actually because you're not supporting them, you're actually then uh, is there an encouragement of recidivism here, right? No excuses, no excuses. I say that with no excuse for recidivism for this heinous act. But are you actually supporting them? By not supporting them, then you're allowing um, space for that to happen, right? Mm -hmm. Rather than supporting them not to do it. Um, So... Then also some of the other issues is now the increase in private um, security companies who are getting tenders for things like the, um, you know, the the leg, um, what's the word I'm after, for um, ta- the, the tracking, mm, right, yep. the mm. leg collar. Um, also then a person has to be able to charge that. If you're living under a bridge, you've got to figure out how to charge that, somewhere you're able to go with electricity. And so, I don't know, in my opinion, I want to support people not to commit heinous acts rather than forcing them to live under a bridge and f- figure out their whole day of how they're going to charge their tracking device um, doesn't seem like a good way to support someone not to be um, doing um, doing something that we don't want them to be doing. Um, and so what it's created is often these ghettos of people kind of living, oh, that's not the right word, of these, these horrible places of people all living together, um, which 
can never be a good idea. Um, and then, um, yeah, and, and a lot of those people might actually not actually be um, what we consider sex offenders to be. They might actually be there for a, a, a something like public urination. So overall, right, there's these terrible problems with the sex offender registries. I, I could go into to other and, um, and give you a whole, um, a whole amount of research and, and any listeners who want that, send me an email. Um, but... So here we have these terrible problems with the sex offender registries and yet animal activists are calling for an animal abuse registry with no consideration of what actually could occur from an animal abuse registry if we look at the problems with the sex offender registry. Um, and if we're going to give the state and particularly then people get up in arms and just go, oh, sex offender registry and won't listen to any type of reason any type of um, actual thorough research mm. and just go, they're bad people, they're wrong, we need to um, do this, that and the other to them, um, you're giving the state power to then do what they want to those people. Mm. Uh, and as people on the left, as anarchists, as animal activists, that's the last thing we should ever want to be giving the state power to do. What we should want to do is talk about um, real ways of supporting um, a people rather than actually just forcing them all to live together under a bridge. And so my concern is if we have animal abuse registries, we're going to see what, what, what are we the outcomes, right? If we're going to sign over to the state, like happened with the sex offender registries, what seemed like um, just giving the police a little more power, if we sign this over, what will they take from it? I don't know. I can't imagine. Um, mm. But as I said, what does reforming somebody in, in uh, an animal abuser even look like um, in this society, let alone if we're going to put them on an animal abuse registry? And and we don't actually have a proper categorisation of animal abuse as we discussed earlier, because mm -hmm. the registry would include what like ninety nine percent of the Australian population yes, who buy exactly. and abuse the mm. abuse animals through their yeah. purchase of their flesh. Mm. Yeah, like a recent case was a kangaroo um, shot in um, in Western Australia, um, and um, he filmed it and put it up online, and um, and the the judge actually said in the co in the courtroom. For a minute there, you were acting inhumanely to that kangaroo because he um, shot. No, he he shot the. Oh, I can't remember now. I think then he he was he was he was physically um, trying to kill the kangaroo with his fists. Right. Mm. If that guy had a gun and a license, he was just doing a job. Mm. Um, yet apparently, when he's doing it in a different way, and and the footage is awful. Right. I'm not saying this isn't about whether or not people are doing good or bad things. This is about looking at the structures in place that allow um, for certain things to be seen as bad and others to be seen as normal. Mm -hmm. uh, and this, in this case, I mean, we kill kangaroos all the time. Yeah. Um, and yet he was put in jail for a year. Mm. And I think also that language, like for a minute there, it sort of is distancing yes. the practice itself is just this particular aspect, but going out and killing kangaroos in general, that's okay. So it's that mm -hmm. distancing from the individual act, from the broader practice, I guess, which yes. we see again and again. And yeah. the irony of the word inhumane never ceases to um, <laughs> floor me. You were acting inhumane. I thought, well, actually, actually very acting very human, in fact, I would yeah. say, if that's what yeah. we think of the word as inhumane. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, and we're just about running out of time. So, yeah, do you have maybe uh, in the last few minutes any anything you didn't get to that you want to touch on in terms of prison abolition or anything we've touched on or also mm. any more resources or anything you'd like people to look into to learn more about this issue? Keep in mind it could be new for some listeners. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the other things I didn't really touch on was that we often get an, um, see the example of a bad slaughterhouse worker mm. um, and 
and that will actually then be used by that slaughterhouse or by that factory farm to say this isn't what we allow right this mm. we don't allow this and we see this we see this when we hear about one bad apple police officer we mm. see this when we hear about all different one bad apple um, and then that bad apple is actually used to reinforce um, how good everybody else is yeah. and so that's often what's used when we see abuse in a slaughterhouse um, because it's the weirdest thing this is an abuser in a slaughterhouse it's like what? <laughs> <laughs> even these words make no sense yeah. um, and and so looking at that language around how that's actually used to create the slaughterhouse to renormalize the slaughterhouse to say that we are good here we do good we we are a good slaughterhouse that was just one bad person mm-hmm. um, and actually then gets subsumed into somehow twisted into making the slaughterhouse better mm. um, and and so always to be critical of that um, there's much you can read about um, you can uh, you can read around prison abolition um, the the kind of first go-to book of course is Angela Davies our prisons obsolete so if this is all new to you I'd suggest starting there um, and and thinking about um, the way that you see uh, the way that you hear language around in- incarcerating um, on a daily basis and starting to question why it is that that that's so normalized and what that fu- what function that serves mm. Uh, and I did want to actually just very briefly mention a, a show I recently saw on Netflix, which was called The Break. And I can't remember the name of the host, but yeah, she made some really interesting points because she was talking about, yeah, the police. And it was just interesting, particularly in the US, there's often like, oh, like there's so many disclaimers, like, oh, the police are there to protect us and they're mostly good, but please. And she was just like, just like stop killing black people. Like she was just very <laughs> upfront about it. And you just don't often see that. And often like, oh, I'm, I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm against this war, but I'm for the truth. And I always get this disclaimer of like, I'm against this thing, but overall the thing is good. And so, yeah, it was kind of good to see that. But we are nearly out of time. Um, I did want to, yeah, briefly give Jess a chance to promote an event. Uh, Jess is from, and myself as well, are from the Institute for Critical Animal Studies. Uh, Do you want to briefly touch on this event, which is coming up in August? Yeah, so we're going to have an event that um, we're so far calling um, Community as Activism, and we're going to talk about um, the different ways of building uh, coalitions across movements and different tactics for building community, um, which is something as animal activists we often don't talk about yet. For a lot of us, our community might be um, all of the people who we do animal activism with. Um, as a queer person, my community is my queer community. And again, it's not often, it's, it's something we talk a bit more about as, as queer people, um, but we want to kind of think about, well, what does it look like to build community and how is that actually something really radical and important that we need to do in the face of capitalism um, and in the in the face of um, facing police repression and so on. Um, community is actually really important and really important work. Uh, so we're just in the starting stage of figuring out um, some speakers and we're going to have a forum um, looking at um, building community um, and how that's a really p- important part of our activism. Yeah, and so they'll be, it'll be interactive, so you'll get to hear talks, but you'll also get to contribute to these discussions as well. So I encourage you to come along. If you uh, like uh, ICAST on Facebook, so just search Institute for Critical Animal Studies Oceana on Facebook and also at ICAST Oceana on Twitter, uh, you'll definitely yeah, find out all those details once they're out. Um, we should give a um, quick plug for the Radiothon before we go. I've heard a few ads for that, but that is coming up from the 4th to the 17th of June. And yeah, 
3CR. We this year we need to raise two hundred fifty thousand dollars to keep 3CR on air. So we are uh, listener supported, and if anyone could make any donations uh, during our appeal wheel appeal week, which is from the fourth to the seventeenth of June, that is much appreciated. Um, and yeah, we're out of time. Thanks a lot for joining us, Jess. It's been great Thanks to hear your perspective, me. and hopefully this has been at the very least uh, a caution for animal activists pursuing this route of prisons and punitive measures. Uh, you can check out old episodes at freedomofspecies.org and you can also listen to our episodes on iTunes. So that's it for now. Um, stay tuned for Encyclo- Encyclopedia. 